This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. I am very excited today to welcome Susan Nance to the program. Dr. Nance is a professor of history at the University of Guelph, where she also serves as affiliate faculty with the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare, and we will be discussing her new book, Rodeo, an animal history which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Susan. Very uh, nice to have you. Hi, thank you very much. Let's begin, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and how you became interested in history. Uh, well, let's see. Well, I'm from BC, um, and um, I uh, grew up in Vancouver, mostly, and uh, being an academic was not something I had in mind when I first was thinking about careers. I grew up in a family of academics. I'm one of those campus brats uh, from Simon Fraser University. Everybody I knew, all the adults that I knew, worked at the university in some capacity. And um, at the same time, I could see the benefits of working at a university because there's times when the whole campus is closed and you get vacation days and it's um, can be part of, you can, you know, at times it can feel like you're part of a big family in some ways. And so, um, I uh, went to university initially, not sure I would where I would end up, but as a physics major, which is, uh, I guess I could have done history of science if I'd stuck with it, but I didn't, it didn't turn out to be the right thing for me. And then I was film studies major, then I was a communications major, and then I eventually ended up in history. And I did communications minor because SFU has uh, a school of communications that's quite, uh, was very well regarded at the time. And um, so that was sort of um, how I ended up in history. And I was originally studying Africa and the Middle East. And 
wanted to go to graduate school, had the idea finally when I hit sort of my early 20s that uh, I was going to need to keep stay in school kids, as they say, uh, in order to sort of uh, get a career that I probably liked. And um, I considered becoming a specialist in the Middle East in some capacity. And when I looked at the amount of language training that those folks do, I was scared away. And um, so that's, uh, I, I, it occurred to me that, 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 you know, that's a significant commitment that you'd have to spend years studying. At the time I realized, okay, I'd have to really have to master modern Arabic and possibly either Turkish or Persian on top of that or some other uh, language. Plus, you know, you're expected to be able to read academic literature in French and German. So anyways, I decided um, that studying uh, the U.S. <laughs> would help me uh, just get my degrees done faster because that sort of whole category of, uh, of training is, is, um, is left out and the research is a lot easier to do logistically because things are closer by and so on. So uh, I took the easy road in some ways. Um, it's more difficult road in other ways because there was just a preponderance of people studying the 20th century U.S. when I was in grad school. I think that was 50% of all history PhDs in the U.S. at the time. So um, in any event, I, I managed to um, get uh, an MA done at SFU, and then I did a PhD at UC Berkeley, which was uh, really felt like I had sort of won the lottery there in getting admitted, and um, got my degree down as quick as I could, and uh, ended up landing a job at the University of Guelph, and uh, that was uh, 18 years ago now. So how did you land then on the history of animals and of animal welfare? That's a pretty uh, uh, far walk from where you started, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I, switched, when I switched into U.S. history, what I did was I was studying the sort of intersection between Middle Eastern and North African and West Asian sort of history and American history, which at the time was uh, a project I did for my MA on the sort of religious culture in 1920s Chicago, which was fantastic and very diverse and uh, contained, you know, ingredients and people and ideas and scriptures and from all over the world. It was just really cosmopolitan space. And so I needed to know the Middle Eastern part and, uh, in order to understand what I was seeing in the sources that documented Chicago. And uh, so I then did a PhD that was related to that. It was less about religious history and more about, I just went full-fledged into the history of entertainment and live entertainment is uh, really what I love. So I was following around all these performers uh, to write my dissertation, performers who presented themselves as somebody from the East and what the East meant could change over time and depending on the context and the venue and who the audience was and who the performer was. And when I was doing that, I ended up looking at sort of uh, the U.S. entertainment scene from sort of just after the revolution up until about the 1930s and 40s. And I, you know, to do that, I sort of, you know, dipped in, visited every uh, sort of entertainment space that there was at the time in any different, you know, decade, which included circuses, um, not so much zoos, but um, circuses, certainly. And um, when I was doing that, uh, I 
came across one of these historical puzzles that historians often do where you find some sources and you just don't know what they are about and it's really mysterious and then for some you know that often happens we find things we don't understand um, because they're just not our area of research or it's sort of by accident um, but I just, I, you know, sometimes you can't forget and about the thing you found you didn't understand. And that can be like the beginning of the next project. So this is what happened to me. I kept finding stories in the memoirs and the newspaper coverage of the circuses and the, the life in the circuses in the late 19th and early 20th century. Stories of people being injured and killed by elephants. And um, the circuses, uh, they had sort of an arms race in elephant uh, acquisition in the later 19th century, 1880s, 90s, turn of the century, where the circuses were all competing with one another for promotional purposes to have the largest herd of elephants on, uh, on their units, their traveling circus units. And um, I just couldn't forget about this. I just, I thought, I want to know <laughs> what this was about. And um, so that was, um, once I had the benefit of my dissertation project was that I got to survey the sort of entertainment scene and the history of entertainment and sort of know where everything is and what the kinds of sources are and who the people were and how most of these trades worked. And um, so that meant I sort of, uh, I didn't mean to do that with the project, but it was like a big survey course in a way. So when I went to work on the elephants, then I had to find on, uh, find, I had to sort of get to know a whole other category of information that I could use to analyze sources that had to do with the elephants themselves. And the idea I had was, you know, if we were telling this story today about an elephant that injured and killed someone on a day in a place working for this company and it had this result and the newspapers reported it or the news t local news team showed up and did a little story we had those kinds of stories how would we talk about it today and one thing we'd everyone would want to know is why why did this elephant behave this way and um one would go and ask elephant specialists who study elephants, living elephants, about how they fare in captivity and what might have been going on. You'd go ask the trainer, you'd go ask staff at the circus. So I thought, well, what would that process look like if we tried to do it for these cases in the 19th and early 20th century? And uh, I had to get to know a lot of the animal welfare literature and some of the natural history and the ethological and kind of behavioral literature on elephants and how they tend to behave at large, but uh, in, you know, in quote unquote, in the wild when they're in Asia or Africa, but also how they behave in captivity. And so it turns out there's been a fair bit of research on this, studying uh, captive elephants in zoos, less so in circuses, uh, I think because the circuses didn't permit that kind of activity. The zoos always um, have welcomed researchers so I was able to apply this. It's often called animal welfare science research. So it's a kind of research that studies elephants with people in different captive settings to try to determine what do elephants need? What are the sort of typical species typical things that they need? Are those needs being met? And what kinds of um, uh, experiments can we devise to try to sort of in effect ask elephants you know if you have this choice or that choice which do you choose you know and sort of use innovative ways of, of 
um, giving animals choices and opportunities in different settings to see how they fare in different ways. And in effect, sort of asking them, what do you need here? Or what would be better for you? Or what would you like? Um, without speaking English to them. And uh, so I found I could use that scientific literature when I looked at it. And I already knew some of what was in the old sources from the 1840s and 70s and 90s. When I read the animal welfare science research, I recognized right away, oh, that elephant from the 1860s, probably this was the case, or it could have been that. And the thing that was really useful about the, the sci animal scientists that I talked to about all this um, was that they were always quite, they pushed things around with question marks. They never claimed to definitively know what's going on with any particular animal. Even when I would bring photographs and show <laughs> to them and say, did this elephant's feet hurt, do you think? Or what do you think of this, this uh, rail car that they're trying to put this elephant inside? And, and what would that have been like for the people inside the rail car with the elephant? What are some of the scenarios that could have played out? They were always very cautious and didn't, they taught me, and I, I tried to keep, keep this in mind when I was writing, to sort of propose what might have been going on or what probably was the case or could have been the case without ever claiming to speak for any historical animal because you can't, that's impossible. And, um, and we don't need to. I think we can get a pretty good idea about, for example, why elephants tended to kill people in circuses and why the number of those killings got more sort of um, intense, the way that it sort of accelerated and built up as the uh, circuses continued to acquire elephants over the course of the 19th century, and those elephants got older, larger, more self, uh, self they sort of wanted more self-determination because they're adult species, they're adult beings in the species. And... Um, so that was really useful, and I just discovered that you can use the scientific literature as a kind of historical model in the same way that somebody who studies political history might look at the work of political scientists, for example, or somebody who studies um, social history might look at the work being done by anthropologists and sociologists and use it to interpret sources from the past. And it's been really useful. You just see all sorts of things in the sources that you would just miss if, if you didn't really understand or had no understanding of um, a given species. And so I have continued to do that ever since. And what is your relationship to rodeo or what was your relationship before starting this project? And I guess on, on that same on that same note, I don't want to overload you with questions, but what has your relationship been through your life with animals? Did you grow up around animals or with pets or anything like that? So both rodeo and animals here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, so why animals? I think uh, one thing that I really liked about it was that it, uh, so I have grown up with animals, yes, <laughs> to answer your question. Um, you know, many dogs, so there was a number of cats, there was two rabbits and two ducks at one point. I did a little bit of horse riding, but not very much. And um, I'm just really, mostly I'm just a dog person is the main thing. Um, I think, but I, the other thing I liked about this kind of history was that I just, I, f I felt like it was a big challenge because it seems like these are very difficult questions. And there are some historians, you can find lots of them who still say, this is ridiculous. This woman doesn't know what she's talking about, or she's just being sentimental and ridiculous. And, you know, because you need very particular tools and you need to really think about what can I say? What can I not say? I like that, that really having that challenge. 
and, you know, being willing to sort of go out on a limb and I might make a mistake, which is, you know, if so, I would like the next person to please do the research and publish a better book. Um, I'm always interested in that. So I think I, I'm not sure why I was. I, it seemed like it was a wide open space that animals are everywhere in human history. There's no purely human space. So and they had just been neglected by historians, which makes sense because for a long time, most of the discipline's history, history was determined to be a record of human agency and especially, you know, powerful white men, right? It was chronicles of, of the great accomplishments of great men. <clears throat> and as we sort of expanded that and added every other person on earth and environmental historians said, hey, you know, these plants have a history, this forest has a history, this waterway has a past that change over time and all these kinds of things. I thought, well, animals must too. They must have a history. The vast majority of it will be completely inaccessible to us because people weren't necessarily present everywhere animals were, but everywhere people have been, there's always been animals present. And um, so, yeah, big wide open space. So why rodeo? So when I was thinking about this as a historian of entertainment, the circuses seemed like the good place to go for the 19th century was a sort of, uh, that research project was a same time span as my dissertation project. So uh, I sort of knew the context, and that was um, just a way to save time in some ways. But I also thought about, well, you know, what 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 was sort of pioneering about what these circus companies did? And they were the biggest entertainment companies in the U.S. in the 19th century. Um, before any electronic media, the circus companies were really um, the most important and uh, most influential. And uh, there was, and there was, you know, this intriguing puzzle about what what it was like to be an elephant in these working or living in these companies in the 19th century. Then for the 20s, I thought, okay, the next project I'd like to do 20th century, and I and I had one regret I had about the circus project was that the elephants. I mean, I was maybe at most talking about I don't know 125, 150 individuals over the course of the whole century. It's not very many animals. And also it's charismatic, megafauna, you know, elephants, everybody um, talks about and knows about. They're kind of one of those favorite animals that, that people are interested in and has been that way for centuries. Uh, but I thought, well, what about a lot of the animals that are a little bit more forgotten uh, or harder to find? And so I thought for the 20th century, what is the one form of entertainment that has employed more animals than any other? And it would be rodeos. And I think... I had forgotten how long I had been thinking about this. Recently, I was looking in old files that I had assembled for the rodeo project, and I found that I had printed something off the internet in 1999 from an anti-rodeo group called uh, Buck the Rodeo. And um, that was, you know, in the late 90s, there wasn't a whole lot on the internet yet at that point. So it was um, kind of funny to see that again and realize, okay, I've been thinking about this for 20 years before the book finally got done. Can you talk a little bit about the roots of rodeo in the American West as we start to get into the book? Um, where does rodeo come from? 
And how were animals treated in the early competitions in rodeo? I appreciate how you said before that, you know, you can't get into the, the animal's head in, in these questions about animal history. But you spent a lot of time talking about how the treatment of animals and how the experience of animals in these rodeos has changed over time. So where does the story begin? Well, this is one of those historical questions that people really like is when was the first rodeo? And people often want to find some primordial single event. And um, often uh, the um, Wild West show impresario, Bill Cody, is credited with starting rodeos. Um, He did not. The community rodeo, which is essentially what I'm studying, which is a competitive rodeo uh, that is run by a local committee in a local venue, And then there's all the different levels of it, as you would have with football or hockey or soccer, where people can start as little kids if they want, or maybe as teenagers, and they sort of can work their way up through these sort of amateur ranks into a professional circuit. Uh, And um, these started in about the 1880s, mid-1880s. And so a lot of the sports had existed before, Um, the vaqueros, right? The Mexican cowboys who sort of pioneered a lot of the skills that some of which were drawn from Spanish traditions that one would use in ranching, which is a very, very old practice in the U.S. Southwest. Um, They had been, you know, horsing around with horses and cattle for a long time. But a community rodeo that's organized by um, either, well, now a committee, but initially it was usually one guy, kind of an entrepreneurial guy who wanted to make some money. He'd find uh, a ground where, uh, a space, it was usually just an open space. It didn't even have fencing or seating. Uh, Eventually, when people had automobiles, sometimes they'd park automobiles around the edge of the performance space and people could sit on top of their cars and watch. But in the 1880s, um, it was um, uh, there was more money starting to circulate. People had more money to spend. There was more people flooding into the West. And it was in Texas, I think I found the first steer busting competition. So this is a, um, and it was um, at an event that included flat races. It was at a, a festival, like a local uh, seasonal festival that hadn't had that kind, those kinds of events before, but suddenly it had, um, there was cockfighting, there was horse flat races, there was other kinds of, I think they had a beautiful baby contest, something of that nature. So it was more like a, an agricultural fair or just a seasonal festival. And um, cowboys um, had been working, uh, you know, young men working for, um, low wages uh, in the West and had spread around the Western uh, U.S. and into Canada as the cattle trade spread up from Texas after the Civil War and ended up finally in, you know, sort of the the nether parts of Alberta and Montana and those areas up in the north, getting into the Northwest by the 1880s. And so what happened was when there was people in Texas were kind of uh, experimenting with steer busting competitions and other kinds of competitions that really only a working cowboy could participate in, right? Because he needed to have certain kinds of roping skills or riding skills. Um, They proved really popular and they just spread like wildfire through the West, which is um, interesting because in the 18... 
70s, but especially 1880s, 1890s, there was a lot of competition among little communities in the West to be like the next big place and to lobby for the railroad to come through here and for, you know, land speculation. And um, the same thing had gone on earlier in the century, like St. Louis and Chicago competing to be sort of the hub into the West. While this kind of thinking, this kind of boosterism and uh, community promotion, um, was spreading around the West and uh, to have a rodeo was a way to draw attention to your community and uh, impresario would make some money by selling tickets and people just loved them. The public really seemed to love watching cowboys perform in these ways. They would show up often in a bunch of really gaudy regalia and um, they were sort of handsome, appealing guys. They were also sort of bad guys in some ways. They were often were drunk. There could be gunplay. And um, so these are sort of the, this is the old time dime novel style cowboy in some ways. Uh, so because these, the cowboys at the time were deemed to be kind of rough and the West was deemed to be kind of rough and brutish and a place where incredible things would happen and as sort of a place of tall tales and amazing stories, rodeo in the beginning had that feel to it. It was really, really brutal and uh, intentionally cruel to animals. Uh, so the a lot of the competitions, for example, with the bronc riding involved, not like you have the bronc riding today where there's a cowboy gets on, he has regulation spurs he's supposed to be using that don't harm the horse. That's that's also a big discussion about how much the rules get followed. Um, and then the horse um, bucks for a certain amount of time, and it's all very sort of regulated and, and controlled how the performance takes place, when it starts, when it ends, and so on. In the old days, people would just get on horses often that were um, just frightened, skittish, abused horses, horses that hadn't had much contact with people, horses that just wouldn't or couldn't be ridden. Perhaps they had an injury. I mean, it's, there could have been many reasons. And the cowboys would just whip them uh, around the head and, and spur them with very sharp sort of uh, old Spanish style spurs, uh, rake them over the sort of the, the, the shoulder and the flank with those until the horse stopped bucking. And that could take, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, in some cases. And the bucking was not the very stylized high kick bucking that you see at rodeos today that sort of started in the 50s. It was often it was just a horse sort of running and kicking and frantically trying to get the rider off. And um, the newspaper reports of these early events and also the steer busting, uh, which was a kind of steer roping that caused the steer to sort of spin in the air and slam down on his side. Um, both really uh, talked with great relish about what was done to these animals and how they were sort of punished and injured, often killed, and that the crowds loved it. So they want the, there was not any kind of regulations or control or any thought to preventing suffering on the part of the horse or the cattle. That was the point, was, was to do, to be as sort of brutish as possible. 
did that did, did that kind of brutality being the point did that change as rodeo increased in popularity and as the sport became more formalized uh during the first decades of the 20th century as the sport changed i guess what i'm asking is how did the experience for animals change in the book you talk about the story of a horse named steamboat in the early uh 20th century what does that horse and and, and its story tell us about this question of rodeo changing and the experience of animals changing yeah, well, it did change. Uh, I think so. There's two processes that, maybe three, <laughs> that seem to have changed rodeo over time. One was that there was always critics, and people who were infuriated, disgusted, terrified, horrified by what was going on at the rodeo grounds. Um, and it wasn't just church ladies. Uh, it was the SPCA and other kinds of animal advocacy groups were active across the West the whole time. And um, they and also some stockmen were concerned about what was happening to animals at the rodeo grounds. Uh, the animal advocates, it's obvious because they didn't want to see this kind of suffering in public because they believed that it was, you know, inhumane and cruel. They used the word cruel in a sort of a 19th century word, meaning it, it, it uh, made an animal suffer in a way that didn't produce any kind of value, they would have said. So if when slaughtered, a steer and then people ate the steer ate the meat that wasn't considered cruelty even though the steer might suffer while being butchered or killed um not butchered hopefully <laughs> and um they also believed that seeing acts of kind of gratuitous brutality hardened society and it trained kids and it trained other adults to tolerate that kind of activity and then it would inevitably get meted out against other people and so they sort of, they had an interesting point about that. Um, stockmen also were concerned because they knew that, and you see the drunk cowboys at, you know, on rodeo day doing the steer busting, they had to practice before. And there was apparently a rash when steer busting became this sort of a big phenomenon in the 1880s and into the 1890s, a rash of stockmen claiming that they found dead and injured steers around in their herds because the cowboys had been practicing on them. Uh, so there was, so there was critics who understood that, yes, there needed to be some kind of festival or community, you know, cowboy ranching, um, celebration, but that it needed to be sort of tempered. The other thing that started to happen into the, so they had some, you know, steer busting was sort of banned in some places. And so sometimes the sort of the most extreme or, or gratuitous or egregious parts of rodeo would be sort of stamped out or you know, put on, put on the back burner for a while, and then it might come back. And this was all dependent on the region, the town, the, the area it was and what year it was. Then into the 20th century, um, rodeo started to make more money. And there were people who made a career out of supplying stock to rodeos, running rodeos, uh, performing in rodeos still wasn't, it was not a very good living, but people just loved the lifestyle. So I think the what Steamboat showed was sort of he was the middle spot between what happened by the 1950s was that these animals, if you had a really good bucker, a bucking horse, it was a lot of money to be made. And it made sense to, you know, take them to every rodeo, every place you could get a booking, you would go. Steamboat was, as I say, the middle position of you know, sort of not a, an animal that someone was taking very good care of to make as much money as they can off of them. Um, because he was making a lot of money, but his owners took him to every rodeo they could, but they also 
sort of neglected him. So each winter he would be put out on a range and just ignored. And when they found him in the spring, he would be skinny and in terrible condition. They often bucked him when he had been cooped up in a rail car for too long. And so, you know, he needed to get a bit of exercise and he wasn't getting any kind of physical therapy or anything uh, like that. There was no veterinary uh, veterinary attention. So if he was injured or if something was um, going to um, potentially get a lot worse with the next performance, um, they, they didn't, they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and kept going. So there was no sense um, among these guys that, you know, if you take care of this horse, even though the performances are quite brutal, if you take care of him, he might last a lot longer. So Steamboat was killed. Um, he died probably due to uh, blood poisoning from having been infected, you know, scraping uh, against some barbed wire or some kind of rusty nail or something in the, um, in the corral fencing at uh, some event he was at. And uh, they ended up, he was um, very sick. He became sick on, on a train ride after a rodeo in Utah. And he was just sort of taken to the livestock dump uh, in, in um, uh, near Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, of course, everybody remembered the myth was that he had been buried at the rodeo grounds in Cheyenne, but he hadn't. He was just in the livestock dump. By the 1950s, there was so much money starting to be in rodeo that the stock contractors realized if we take better care and if we really hand select the right stock and that can handle not just the bucking, but also the travel and what's expected of them behind the scenes, you can make a lot more money. And then we can also breed those animals and maybe we'll get good buckers from them as well. So it started to take on uh, something that looks a little bit more like horse racing today. Um, the cowboys themselves, the performers, were and cowgirls in the in the 1900s and 10s and 20s and 30s had been sort of instrumental in this um in talking about stock and talking to stock contractors and the impresarios at the rodeos about the stock and in the tw mid 20th century a lot of women were sort of purged from competitive rough stock events but the men that remained started to have more power in the industry and they wanted certain kinds of horses that would buck in certain ways and in a very dependable way so that they could get high earning rides done so that they could earn a lot of points and win competitions. And so the type of horses, for example, for the bucking that were being supplied and then bull riding followed later uh, in this model um, tended to be um, horses that you know were less dangerous, less unpredictable, that did a very special stylized kind of bucking that a rider could ride on and look really good doing it and get his high points uh, score and uh, earn more money. And so that started to happen really in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And then with bull riding in terms of the cultivation of the bucking bulls, um, that also happened uh, starting in the 1970s. So it was sort of um, the animals, uh, the horses and the cattle involved in the rough stock events anyways, were having, um, were less likely to be just a terrified random creature found on a range someplace. Um, they also were traveling less, performing less in order to sort of preserve their value. I don't know that it was a happier life necessarily for them. I can't really say that, but um, that was, I think, in large part from the influence of the, of the competitors.
And on a similar note, I want to ask about Canadian rodeo as well, because as you write in the book, uh, th- this is in some ways a, a pretty transnational book in that you, you cross over the Canadian border and talk about similarities and differences a fair amount in, in Canada and in the Canadian West. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the history of the Calgary Stampede uh, in Calgary, Alberta, and the, the kind of complicated role of horses in that event. Specifically, can you tell us about surplus horses and what that whole concept tells us about rodeo in the Canadian West? Sure. Well, um, rodeo came to Canada a little bit later. Um, same reasons. It was about community boosterism, and audiences seem to like watching Cowboy sports. Uh, Stampede um, dates to the early 1910s. There was just sort of one event and then there was a bit of a break because of World War II, or sorry, World War I. And then it got going again and then it was sort of in full swing by the 1920s. And the promoter in this case was a guy by the name of Guy Wedick, who was uh, an American and he came out of the Circus and Wild West show live performance kind of tradition. And he... um, Uh, sort of appeared in Calgary and said that he was going to put on a big show and it would promote Calgary. Uh, Many Canadian towns and cities were competing um, for influence and business investment in that period, same as had happened in the U.S., further south. And so he he started up the Stampede. He was, um, one of the things he really did that was innovative uh, was to really go be very systematic about obtaining bucking stock and keeping records of which horse and which bull performed in what way, and then deciding whether or not to have that animal come back the next year or not. Um, And uh, being, so it wasn't just, um, you know, it was so haphazard in the beginning at many rodeos, they would just sort of get some animals, you know, do we know a guy who could bring some some wild horses or you know it was just and there was no sort of uh, records kept of you know who had the best ones or if there was a particularly good one um in in a lot of rodeos it was really haphazard so Wedek decided he hadn't he and I've seen the I think I might reproduce it in my book he kept these ledgers at every performance where it was recorded who which horse bucked and what the buck was like uh, what the ride was like and the result and he also kept these statistics. So as the cowboys, uh, the male and some of the female competitors started to become better, one needed to supply better horses. And the audiences were very quick to make it clear if they thought that a performance was boring. And many rodeos uh, suffered from bad stock or, or what they would have called bad stock or just sorry stock that wouldn't do the kinds of behaviors that people wanted no matter what was being done to them. Uh, so this was sort of, you know, the impresarios were always on the hunt for good stock. And he came up with this sort of way of understanding, if I'm going to have this, you know, this many competitors and they're going to do, um, these are, you know, um, high-performing guys are going to be performing in the bucking contests. I need, in order to supply enough good rides, I need, you know, so many more horses than that. You can't just get in 10 horses and expect 10 good uh, buckers to be there. So that one needed to bring in a huge pool of horses to sort of find the ones that on that day or that weekend were going to perform up to par. And then, um, you know, the radio community was pretty small. Word would get around if somebody had the good horses or the good stock or did not. 
uh, and the competitors would avoid um, competitions where they thought they couldn't make any money sometimes or they weren't going to learn something that would be useful later. So um, <clears throat> this, uh, again, represents or is uh, sort of uh, similar to how a lot of animal industries work. You think about breeding uh, racehorses or champion show dogs or um, animals that are bred for uh, training in um, uh, what used to be circus shows or uh, television and film work. You need to sort of breed and have a big pool of many, many potential sort of candidates to find the few that will pay off. And so the term that I use in the, uh, in the book is wastage, which is actually a term that comes from the greyhound racing industry. It's an industry term where in uh, greyhound racing, they you know, breed many, many litters and you weed out the puppies that won't, that are, you know, don't have the right uh, uh, sort of gameness about their personality. And then you weed out the ones that are too slow when they're about a year old. And then you only send a handful to the track and then only a few from that uh, group then actually become, you know, champions, right? So the, all, the, all the many, many other <laughs> animals you have to go through to find those champions, that's the wastage. Um, so surplus horses were, you know, just the, the many horses that, you know, would come into Stampede. They'd come in on trains or sometimes they were walked in, even driven in and uh, just didn't perform very well or they might perform for a year or two and then were kind of bucked out or became injured or something else happened to them and um, in the sort of early stage in the 1920s when I was looking at Stampede and these ledgers with the detailed records of all the individual horses they're just such unique sources they're amazing um, I found that there was a source called Greasy uh, there was a, um, a a mare, a horse named Greasy, Greasy Sal, who was part of a string that was owned by the Stampede itself. They had um, a ranch and they were had bucking horses and other kinds of livestock out there. And they obviously had been turning out the mares and the stallions together. And so she became pregnant and foaled. And one of the um, staff members from the Stampede killed the foal so that she would be able to come back to the rodeo and buck again. So it was, I could see in that early stage in the stampede, that same pattern we find in animal use, wherever there's, in the, certainly in the entertainment business, but you can find it even in animal agriculture for food, where people are working to isolate the single behavior, the single thing that an animal does that provides value to the, the venture, whatever it is, and any other animals that aren't productive, they get thrown out, weeded out, because it's not worthwhile paying to keep them. Um, and also animals are only kept while they're productive. So if they, uh, you know, which means generally, you know, and the circuses were the same I had found in the 19th century, they're trading in baby animals and juveniles, young animals, because old animals don't pay. Uh, so I think that's what I meant by that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
So we've been kind of tracking how rodeo has changed and how the experience of animals has changed over the course of the end of the 19th up through the 20th century. And before we get up to the present day, I'm wondering how things changed after the era when Steamboat was participating in in rodeo, for instance, in sort of the the mid to the late decades of the 20th century. Um, It's in this period when you say in the book that... uh, uh, Rodeo is strongly ingrained in Western uh, American and Western Canadian culture. And yet, again, as you say in the book, a lot of aspects of rodeo culture at this time were still masking the animal cost of the sport. Can you tell us what you meant by this? And specifically, maybe tell us a bit about the horse named War Paint and about cultural myths surrounding rodeo in the kind of post-war, uh, post-World War II, excuse me, era? Sure. Well, as I said, there had always been critics. There was always people who uh, disliked rodeo and wrote letters to the rodeo committee or the impresario running it or read it to the the newspapers or the local humane society to say that they objected and wanted this stopped or a particular event needs to be stopped. The the humane societies and SPCAs in the western areas uh, of North America generally supported rodeo uh, even though they might say that, you know, one event, this event or that event should be banned. Overall, they supported it because they were a product of their community. Um, these were not animal rights organizations. They were sort of, you know, anti-cruelty organizations. And so they um, and they survived off donations and the participation of, of local people. So there was there's only, you know, only so much they could do and that they wanted to do. However, what uh, with the, the ban on steer busting, the, the sort of supposed bans on steer busting that took place around the turn of the century, um, they started rodeo sort of down this path whereby it was easy to sort of silence the critics occasionally by creating the appearance of reform and then learning, okay, there's certain things that need to go backstage and we don't show people. And uh, any entertainment, any live entertainment has a, a backstage element, things that go on behind the scenes that the audience can't see or it will sort of destroy the, um, the uh, fantasy that the, what's going on front stage uh, is designed to create. So um, steer busting still went on uh, and steer roping, which is a different kind, it's sort of a different style of the same event where you're you know, a guy on a horse chases a steer who's running. Women did it too a little bit and uh, rope the steer around the horns and um, get him to the ground. It's similar to tie down roping or calf roping as well. Um, So this continued on, but it was um, at the big sort of uh, marquee event rodeos, there uh, started to be, uh, there was a sort of long process of rodeo committees and competitors and the rodeo organizations that started to form as time went on understanding there's certain things we don't show the public we don't say to the public and that we there's and that among the rodeo community everybody keeps their mouths shut (laughs) you don't expose the community as a whole by airing your complaints or your disagreements in public and they were you know very good job at this they did a very good job at this so by the 1950s um when it was, you know, rodeo competitors, cowboys in particular, talking about bucking horses like war paint, war paint, um, they really, um, war paint was good for the industry because 
He came out, he did his bucking in a very predictable way. He was very dependable. He traveled well. He was photogenic. He was a beautiful horse. Um, the cowboys could name him and talk about him as a sort of great sort of fellow competitor. And so they weren't talking about war paint in the way that one the cowboys might have talked about Steamboat 30 years earlier as a sort of mean, brutal beast, you know. Instead, they were talking about war paint as a professional, as a, an athlete, a rodeo athlete. So the way that people were talking about these animals sort of started, as you say, to kind of mask some of what was going on behind the scenes because the implication was the horse just wanted to buck. And you can hear rodeo people still today talk about horses and bulls. Oh, he just loves to buck. They don't say these kinds of things about the calves that are used in the tie-down or calf roping. They don't say those kinds of things so much about the steers that are used in steer wrestling or steer roping. They do say that about the steers and the bulls that are used in an event called um, bullfighting, which is essentially uh, kind of, um, it's, it's sort of uh, produced out of the old work of the rodeo clown who would distract a bull after a rider was dislodged from a bucking bull, distract the bull so the bull didn't injure the rider and he could make his escape. Um, so it's a kind of um, acrobatic dance <laughs> sort of event where you um, a competitor gets in the ring with the ball and sort of dances around him and dodges him, and there's points scored for that, and there can be a competition um, in any event. Um, those animals are often talked about as um, willing competitors, right, that they just love to buck and um, that they're uh, eager for the competition for the, with the cowboy. And... You know, I think everybody in the rodeo community knows that this is kind of a fiction, that talking about uh, bucking bulls who just, you know, want are ready to go. And I think, you know, stock contractors will say, look, we have some bulls, you just you pull up the trailer and they come over. They want to get in the trailer. And I don't, and I think that can be true because people have selected bulls for so long now to find the ones that like to go in the trailer uh, and, uh, also the bulls that just, especially as they have experience, as they get a little bit older, um, not their first year, but in their second, third, fourth year, people, and I've seen it myself, the, you know, the young bulls that kind of are frantic and kicking in the chute. And then when they get out, they buck a rider off and then they sort of circle around in the arena and they're not sure where to go or somebody, the pickup man will rope them, try to get them out and they just sort of pull and fight. The older bulls stand calmly in the chute, the gate opens, they buck the rider off, and then they head directly to the exit. And I've seen myself, the bulls, who are sort of turned around and look over there, is it there? No, look at the next spot, is it there? No, and then look to their left, oh, there's the chute, and then out he goes. So they, they have learned how to do things very efficiently to get their reward, which is getting out of the arena and getting back into the behind-the-scenes area. So um, so it's through a different style of performance, different ways of talking about what the animal's um, supposed state of mind is, what their supposed, you know, experience is, which is, there's a grain of truth to it because the today the better bulls and the better horses and certainly the horses that are used for roping, the roping horses, I mean, they're all trained to perform certain things in that arena in a very predictable, dependable way. Um, I don't think a lot of them are terrified when they're doing that or they wouldn't perform that well. 
The green animals, though, they're the ones that are just getting started um, often aren't doing are having a, a much more difficult experience, I believe. And also, there's a big range when you go to the National Finals Rodeo or the Calgary Stampede or Cheyenne Frontier Days often. You have, I mean, this is the elite of the elite of the elite. The best animals, the best competitors, the best judges, hopefully. Uh, and so they're in a one category. It's like the Olympics. <laughs> and then you have to imagine going all the way down to just local ranches where people are trying out animals that maybe aren't cut out for rodeo work. And uh, I think then it can be uh, often very frightening animals that are not sort of prone or game for producing the kind of behavior that the rodeo needs in a particular event. It's I think it's common to find animals that are being prodded and uh, sort of injured in different ways to get them frightened so that they'll choose some some form of the behavior that you're wanting. And this goes on still because rodeos often or the, the practice pens where people have stock that they practice on, you know, there's not that much money around necessarily to have super, super elite top stock, which is very expensive. So sometimes at a community rodeo, it means that, you know, if a calf is in the chute and we're going to launch the calf out so that the roper can chase the calf and tie the calf, you know, if the calf is a bit lethargic, you know, you twist their tail or you give them a kick with the boot. I mean, it could be as simple as that. So rodeo people have learned over time to sort of mask that by talking about the celebrities, talking about animals and, um, and at the higher levels anyways, weeding out the animals that just aren't going to fare very well. And then thinking about current day rodeo, how are animals treated in rodeo across the American West and the Canadian West and, and across North America in general? How are they treated today? Uh, kind of taking the, the long view of the history of rodeo from the 19th century up through today, what has changed since the late 19th century? And then what has largely remained the same since then as well? Well, so the, the one thing that has changed, I think, is that there's there's more money in rodeo. So the 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 better stock contractors and um, are able to cultivate better stock that has a you know less painful or frightening experience. And they can sort of deliver the behaviors that the rodeo needs more dependably. And they live a long time quite often. Uh, they're not so disposable. Again, this is at the, really at the highest levels. At the lower levels, I think it can be quite similar to how things were, you know, 100 years ago, where you just get any stock you can and you get them to buck or to run in any way you can. And I've had rodeo competitors, cowboys say, you know, didn't like it so much at the lower levels because of the state of the animals. They were often just in rough shape or injured or bulky or frightened, or you could just tell they just weren't, you know, in good shape. And so a lot of cowboys don't like to see that either. So it's just another reason to get to the elite levels. One thing that hasn't changed, which was sort of one of the big arguments I tried to make in the book was, when you think about Western history and the big the big picture arguments that people make about the West, the American West and the Canadian West and, um, you know, parts of Mexico too. You know, what makes the West Western? What is it about West that is uh, unique? And 
what does it mean to be Western? And people have talked about this in, you know, in relationship to rodeo as a, uh, being a sort of a ritual whereby settler communities, but also indigenous people certainly um, sort of, um, and Mexican people did before or still do, engage in a practice of kind of human supremacy and sort of uh, mastering, taming the wild, right? I think that's a little bit less so with indigenous rodeos, but um, so it's, it's about taming the wild or sort of reenacting the settler drama of the West, which was about conquering and fighting and struggling. And I think those things are true. I think for indigenous rodeos, um, the sort of main argument that people make is that it's a way to be indigenous in public as a community. Everybody's seeing one another, being seen um, as horse people, as cattle people, because a lot of cattle ranchers are indigenous as well. And um, and uh, to, to just sort of be out proudly as rural people in, in public, right? And... Um, and I, those are, again, completely correct. So what I wanted to say was, well, what, but if we really look at the cattle and the horses, they're not kind of incidental. What is, what is it, uh, you know, because people who are from Maryland or Quebec <laughs> don't necessarily want to, to have this kind of relationship with animals. And so my argument was that to be a rural Westerner is about having very specific kinds of relationships with particular animals. And that if you look through the whole history of this, you know, one thing that a lot of rodeo people and, and their sort of Western neighbors um, agree on is that it's not the role of people to protect animals from hard work or from pain, that this is just what life is. And that, you know, to be a, a person, a, a sort of a true Westerner, you have to be willing to do the work and suffer the, you know, some pain and discomfort and you're tougher than others. And you often hear rural Westerners and rodeo people talk about that when they're criticized, often by folks in cities to say, well, you know, we're the ones who do the work that puts the steak on your plate there in San Francisco. So, you know, don't criticize me in Saskatchewan. <laughs> Uh, for living the way I do, because you benefit from the work I do and my, you know, strength and um, perseverance and willingness to live out on the land in the weather and produce the food that you like. And I think a lot of rural Westerners, it's my mind to get their kids to participate in rodeo in particular is a way of demonstrating like this kid is dyed in the wool, rural, tough person who can do things that other kids would be afraid to do or unable to do. It's, it's a way of sort of, you know, keeping that culture alive, that idea that, you know, we fight against these animals because they prove how tough we are and they're tough too. They're, they're Western, those animals, because they fight and they struggle and they want to be free. Um, which again is a fiction on in all respects, <laughs> in some ways, right? These are the stories people tell about themselves. And then they also want to tell those stories about the animals. So to take sort of a 30,000 foot view on this book, and maybe you just touched on, on this in your answer a second ago, but put, to put kind of a finer point on it, looking at the book as a whole, I'm wondering if there's one major takeaway that you hope readers will come away from this book understanding and thinking about after they put the book down, what do you think that might be? Um, my hope would be that 
well, the, wherever they go after this, that they would see the animals that are hidden in plain view. Mm-hmm. Because I think rodeo history, as it's been written for a long time, the animals were kind of there, but also not <laughs> at the same time. Sort of get a little glimpse of them in the arena, and then they would disappear. And so I tried to give the whole view of the animals that I followed when I could from, you know, if possible, from birth to death in in the case of some individuals. The records don't always make that possible. But to talk about not just what went on in the arena, but what went on backstage. So I'm hoping that when people see that, that in whatever other part of history they look at or their own lives, they will think, I'm seeing this aspect of what this animal is doing or experiencing or where he is or where she's going. What am I not seeing? Like, what is the fuller picture? What is the whole holistic picture of this animal's life? And what is it? Why, you know, as a species, human beings are very good at flattering ourselves. And often that means keeping aspects of our interactions with animals that are disagreeable or regrettable or a product of human weakness or laziness or just us taking on more than we can manage, biting off more than we can chew. Um, and I, I want us to be more honest about our own limitations and, and then how our limitations impose things on other species. And I think Considering, you know, the state of the world today, uh, I think there's a lot of people and, you know, the pandemic is just another example of this. The pandemic is uh, that we have bitten off more than we can chew in a ways that we have altered our environment. And now there's, you know, and there has been for a while, but there's going to continue to be unintended consequences. So I'm hoping that if people... When you see an animal, assume there's more going on. <laughs> assume things are being hidden from you or are just out of the picture, and you need to ask, what else? What's the bigger picture here? And um, understanding that animals are all around us, but we, we just have this bad habit of forgetting a lot of the details. That can be really one of the powers of history, as I see it, is that it forces people to consider other perspectives and often other perspectives on events or on stories that they think they know very well. And as you kind of said at the outset of of our conversation, historians have been especially over the course of the second half of the 20th century, pretty good about doing that from a human perspective, looking at other human perspectives on events. But I think that we still have a ways to go as uh, as a field um, and, you know, even more large than that as a society in looking at it beyond just our own kind of blinkered experience as humans. And so I think that's that's what I see as, as the takeaway of, of your book is that it really gets at one of the powers of history. Great. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> a plus. <laughs> So, Susan, for my last question, I always like to get um, uh, a preview of what my guests are working on next. I mean, I know historians and I know that that we all have a lot of projects that we're thinking about at, at one time. So this book has been out for a couple years now. What have you been working on in the interim and what uh, might your next project be? So the next project is uh, about Las Vegas and um, also live entertainment in Las Vegas, um, or it's using Las Vegas as a base. Really what it is, is it's a study of the exotic animal trade in the U.S. in the 20th century, which is a gigantic topic. And it's one where it can be very hard to find records of, because I am always interested in an, individual animals. 
um, it can be very hard to find the evidence you're looking for. Uh, so what I decided to do was to sort of base the study in Las Vegas. And uh, the first thing I'm doing is I'm trying to make a sort of map out every animal who has appeared on the Las Vegas Strip or on Fremont Street, where the, there's also casinos and live shows. Um, every animal who's appeared either in uh, a performance uh, show or on display uh, since the 1940s. So this is, it's probably impossible, but I'm going to see what I can do. Just put together, map it out as much as I can. And then, so that'll be sort of a starting point. And then I'm going to try to find some among those animals and follow them out of Las Vegas back to their origin, if I can determine it, and then to find out where they went after Las Vegas. And so what I've discovered so far is... Um, I'm just sort of in the 1950s right now looking at old old newspapers and photographs and trade journals, things like that. And I've been following uh, some chimpanzees and um, notice uh, trying to track the move their movements between the live shows in Las Vegas and television and film work and then other kinds of uh, work that um, they were put to by their owners and the movements of their owners um, in the 1950s. So it's uh, a very, very depressing topic. <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like a, a depressing topic, but also a fascinating topic as well. And one that, uh, I mean, this is what we were just saying a second ago, one that I hadn't even really considered prior to you talking about it. Um, so I, I can't wait to read that. And when it comes out, I'll, I'll be sure to invite you back on the show. Okay, sure. Sure. Thank you very Doc much. Yeah, of course. Of course. Dr. Susan Nance is a professor of history at the University of Guelph, where she also serves as affiliate faculty with the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare. And her new book is Rodeo, an animal history, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2020. Thanks again for speaking with me today, Susan. Okay. Thank you.